0: Hey folks, so I don't usually do this. I never did it actually, but I'm doing it now because while I was listening to the podcast a second time and editing it, a bunch of stuff came up for me and I didn't want to quite do my own rant on that podcast because I didn't want to be adding my own editorial to the interview, but this is kind of stuff that are more uh, my own rant, so I'm using this as a way to share that. So if you listen to the previous episode, you heard some of this recurring theme that has also come up on other podcasts that I've done, which is this oftentimes found fear and resistance within the firm community to support wisdom or ideas from the quote-unquote outside world. And the reason that is such a pet peeve of mine is because I see the impact of that in so many different ways, both within my own life and people that I know particularly when it comes to feeling in a state of in opposition to like my my identity as a Jew is something that has to be at the expense of my feeling a part of the world around me and and the other way around too that if i'm going to identify and want to be a part of the world around me i feel it has to come at the expense of my jewish identity and i really hate that and i think it's false and i think it's 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 rooted in unfounded fear and the greatest example of that falsehood i think is is shown in the history of of alcoholics anonymous and some of that was touched upon in this episode but i wanted to kind of share my own rant in this separate piece so what i'm going to share now Probably need some historical context that I, it's not for now, but I'm going to post some links in the description. So for those interested, you should check that out. It's really fascinating stuff. But the the basic idea here is how if we allow ourselves to put the fear aside, we may discover that the greatest gift we have as Jews, and particularly Torah-believing Jews, is when we can find not just commonality, but we can find our own wisdom from our own heritage in the outside world not that oh my god they have the same thing who is it really from no certainly we'll find out that it has some root in in our mishora if you will in our in our torah in our in our history in our heritage but if that's the case what's all this fear and hang up about. Not only that it should feel validating, but it should be an inspiration. It should be a reason for joy to find out that the Torah, which was meant not to be lived in a vacuum or kept in a vacuum, it was supposed to be shared and be a light onto the world, has actually had that impact. And now we get to see the fruits of that by, by discovering ideas and wisdom from Torah that has impacted the world in a real way in a way that's not just valid on an intellectual level, but that actually works on a level of human behavior, and now we get to be the recipients of that wisdom within the lived experience as a part of our fellow man, just like our fellow man? Why would that be a negative thing? So uh, not to go on a whole long history of AA, just some brief facts that are going to be Necessary for what I'm going to share now. AA was officially founded in 1935 by Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith in Akron, Ohio. But in truth, it had many beginnings in years, decades, centuries, and as you'll hear, actually millennia before. One of those very significant beginnings was four years prior in 1931, when a certain Roland Hazard was under the care of Dr. Carl Jung in Switzerland. So what I'm going to read now is a letter from Bill Wilson to Carl Jung in 1961. There's a lot of context here that I'm not giving because I don't want to just go on and on, but I'm going to post some links in the description, and, and you can read up on there, and I, I definitely suggest it. It's really fascinating stuff. So here's this letter. My dear Dr. Jung, this letter of great appreciation has been very long overdue. May I first introduce myself as Bill W., a co-founder of the Society of Alcoholics Anonymous. Though you have surely heard of us, I doubt if you are aware that a certain conversation you had with one of your patients, a Mr. Roland H., back in the early 1930s, did play a critical role in the founding of our fellowship. Though Roland H. has long since passed away, the recollection of his remarkable experience while under treatment by you has definitely become part of AA history. Our remembrance of Roland H.'s statements about his experience with you is as follows. Having exhausted other means of recovery from his alcoholism, it was about 1931 that he became your patient. I believe he remained under your care for perhaps a year. His admiration for you was boundless, and he left you with a feeling of much confidence. To his great... Consternation, he soon relapsed into intoxication. Certain that you were his court of last resort, he again returned to your care. Then followed the conversation between you that was to become the first link in the chain of events that led to the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. My recollection of his account of that conversation is this first of all, you frankly told him of his hopelessness so far as. Any further medical or psychiatric treatment might be concerned. This candid and humble statement of yours was beyond doubt the first foundation stone upon which our society has been built. Coming from you, one he trusted and admired, the impact upon him was immense. When he then asked you if there was any other hope, you told him that there might be, provided he could become the subject of a spiritual or religious experience, in short, a genuine conversion. You pointed out how such an experience, if brought about, might re-motivate him when nothing else could. But you did caution, though, that while such experiences had sometimes brought recovery to alcoholics, they were nevertheless comparatively rare. You recommended that he place himself in a religious atmosphere and hope for the best. This, I believe, was the substance of your advice. Shortly thereafter, Mr. H. joined the Oxford Group, an evangelical movement, then at the height of its success in Europe, one with which you are doubtless familiar. You will remember their large emphasis upon the principles of self-survey, also known as cheshbir anafesh, and this is my own, uh, confession, also known as vidui, restitution, um, that would be tikkun, and the giving of oneself in service to others, chesed, avas, uh, achim. They strongly stressed meditation and prayer, also known as davening and uh, isbenenus. In these surroundings, Roland H. did find a conversion experience that released him for the time being from his compulsion to drink. Returning to New York, he became very active with the O.G. You know, and then they say that Bill was uh, stuck in 1920s uh, language. No, I'm kidding. OG stands for Oxford Group. Anyway, the, the letter continues in a lot of historical context for AA that is not relevant to this. The main thing I wanted to get to was the reply from Carl Jung to Bill Wilson. And this, re- this response was just six months before Carl Jung would pass away. So that's pretty crazy. And mind you, this is uh, over 30 years after that event. And yet, as you'll hear, Carl Jung had a very specific and vivid memory of that whole episode. So this is Dr. Jung's reply to Bill Wilson. Dear Mr. W., your letter has been very welcome indeed. I had no news from Roland H. anymore and often wondered what has been his fate. Our conversation, which he has adequately reported to you, had an aspect of which he did not know. The reason that I could not tell him everything was that those days I had to be exceedingly careful of what I had said. I had found out that I was misunderstood in every possible way. Thus, I was very careful when I talked to Roland H., but what I really thought about was the result of many experiences with men of his kind. His craving for alcohol was the equivalent, on a low level, of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness, expressed in medieval language as the union with God, a.k.a. And There's an asterisk here that I'll get to soon. How could one formulate such an insight in a language that is not misunderstood in our days? The only right and legitimate way to such an experience is that it happens to you in reality, and it can only happen to you when you walk on a path which leads you to a higher understanding. You might be led to that goal by an act of grace, or through a personal and honest contact with friends, or through a higher education of the mind beyond the confines of mere rationalism. I see from your letter that Roland H. has chosen the se- had chosen the second way which was, under the circumstances, obviously the best one. I am strongly convinced that the evil principle prevailing in this world leads the unrecognized spiritual need into perdition, if it is not counteracted either by real religious insight or by the protective wall of human community. An ordinary man, not protected by an action from above and isolated in society, cannot resist the power of evil, which is called very aptly the devil. Kind of like what it says, You know? So, and the letter continues, But the use of such words arouses so many mistakes that one can only keep aloof from them as much as possible. These are the reasons why I could not give a full and sufficient explanation to Roland H., But I am risking it with you because I conclude from your very decent and honest letter that you have acquired a point of view above the misleading platitudes one usually hears about alcoholism. You see, alcohol in Latin is spiritus, and you use the same word for the highest religious experience as well as for the most depraving poison. The helpful formula, therefore, is spiritus contra spiritum. That is, the spirit of dvayas, the spirit of oneness with the spiritual, is what counteracts the uh, the poison of of alcohol. And you could insert there whatever kind of uh, equivalent of uh, of alcohol might be the case for for you. Thanking you again for your kind letter. I remain yours sincerely, C. G. Jung. And here's the asterisk that I mentioned earlier when he talks about his craving for alcohol was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness expressed in medieval language, the union with God. And here he quotes to Hillam, as the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. The reason I read all this is because there's something else that is even more significant. So like I said, Carl Jung wrote this letter about six months before he died. Something very interesting happened four years or so before this letter was written. That is that in an interview on his 80th birthday, Carl Jung said as follows, and this is with regards to the canon of his work. So during this interview on his 80th birthday in 1961, he said as follows, But do you know who anticipated my entire psychology in the 18th century? The Hasidic Rebbe, Rev. of Mezrich, whom they called the Great Magad. He was a most impressive man. So what I'd like to ask myself and ask anyone who's listening who's interested in this whole concept about the concerns or the fears or resistance from finding support or communion with outside quote-unquote outside sources if you believe in in terrorist ms then you probably believe that terror was not given to us or the world in order to remain in a vacuum you know like it says Ki mitziu in that it was meant to leave it was meant to spring forth and enter the world and affect the world impact the world to the point of, like the next passage that follows in Yeshayahu, that the, that the nations themselves will, will turn their swords into plowshares. So why would be, we be surprised when that actually works? Why would we be surprised when terror actually impacts the world to a degree that it could then be expressed and reflected back to us? Not just reflected back to us well, but perhaps in a way that is actually more attractive and more relevant to us based on the fact that it went through the lived experience of the world itself, why would that be a negative thing or something to be afraid of? Why wouldn't it be welcomed or even reason for joy? And why would we want to hang on to a perception of terror and Yiddishkeit that lives and dies in a vacuum? Unless, of course, someone or something planted some skewed notion of isolationism, that we feel like the lived experience from the outside is somewhat of a contradiction to the dogma of terror and Yiddishkeit. And to me, that runs contrary to the whole deal. We're not supposed to live in opposition to. And that's not to say that there isn't the, the truth of being in am kaddish, kaddish and separated in the most beautiful way. But, but to what end? We are here to impact, we are here to be a light unto the nations, to spread the messages of Torah to the outside world, and obviously that is supposed to actually work, and when it does, we have this unique gift to be able to then discover the impact of Torah in the world and Jewish concepts, beliefs that have been present in the world for centuries, then reflected back to us in a way that is perhaps to some of us even more meaningful than finding it within terror itself. All wisdom is plagiarized. Only stupidity is original.